Greetings and welcome to White's Run Baptist Church. What you see here in this picture is a man with his prayer shawl getting ready to blow a shofar, which is a ram's horn. And this would be in line with the tradition on the Jewish Feast of Trumpets. Well, welcome to this session. Today we're going to talk about the Feast of Israel. And the questions we want to answer today is this. How much detail did God give concerning his salvation plan and the bringing forth of Jesus Christ? And what we're going to discover and what we are discovering and we're going through the Pentateuch here in this series called Beginnings is that everything that God has done, everything he did in the, in the people of Israel and in their history and working in the lives of the faithful of the past and everything then that he has inspired to be included in his Bible points toward his plan to restore on earth the heavenly kingdom, the proper kingdom, the dominion of man upon the earth. Now it's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus Christ was here. And people might be asking, how do we know that the plan is continuing? How do we know that it's pushing forward? Is this, you know, still going on? Is God still on schedule? How can we be certain that all these things are true? And in these dark times, how can we be reassured that God is still working? Well, we may expect to find answers to those kind of questions in the New Testament. Many people would turn to the book of Revelation and say, are we, are we in those last days? Is God continuing his plan? Is he wrapping things up yet? Some people might turn to the Old Testament, and if they did, they would likely go to the prophets, where the prophets speak a, a great deal about the coming of Christ and things, both his first and second coming, but not us. <laughs> Today, we're going right into the heart of the Pentateuch. That is the first five books of the Bible. We're going right into the law, into one of the most profoundly neglected books of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. So we'll be in Leviticus chapter 23. And here what we're going to find is that God not only made uh, a calendar of yearly events for his people Israel to observe, but that this calendar was his schedule for fulfilling everything in Jesus Christ. It's, uh, it is as exciting as it sounds. Now, the reading itself isn't quite as exciting, which is why we're just going to read a couple verses at the beginning of this chapter that kind of kick it off. Here's what he says at the beginning of the chapter. And mind you, he's giving the law to Moses. And this is the law that's going to govern the people Israel while they live in the land that God was going to give them. So at this point, they're still waiting in the wilderness for that time when God is ready to bring them into the land and give them the land. And here's what it says in Leviticus 23, in the midst of getting all these other laws, civil laws, laws concerning the tabernacle, how to worship, how to sacrifice to God and everything else. Here's what we find here in 23. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Let's begin then with a word of prayer. Father God, it's this day that we ask you to give us understanding of these things, Lord, and though these topics are too deep and too broad for us to handle in a short time together, but we pray that you would help us get the main point. What is it you're saying to your people Israel in these things? 
And Lord, what does it mean that you gave these to them and that they speak so much of Jesus Christ? I pray for understanding today. I pray that our listeners would be blessed with the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so there we have uh, just a couple things to introduce this. And as, as I skim through the chapter here, you'll see it talks about the Sabbath, the Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement. Uh, some of these will sound familiar to you. The Feast of Booths is explained here. And all of these things, what we want to understand is this that there are seven feasts listed here. Now, there are other feasts that come along in the Bible. Uh, there's one embedded here in the text that was observed by the Jews. There's two others that kind of come up later that they begin to observe, and Jesus indeed even observed those, including Hanukkah, which is not in the Bible, but it is accounted in the history of Israel in the book of Maccabees. So all these things, uh, all these Israel, or all these feasts, point to the coming work of Jesus Christ. And not only do they point to it, but they kind of give us a schedule for what the Lord is doing. The first four feasts have been fulfilled uh, in the order in which we'll look at them. The last three are partially fulfilled, but will be completely fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus. So his first coming did the spring feast, and his second coming is during the fall feast, and we find ourselves in this 2,000, almost 2,000 year period now between the fulfillment of these feasts. And so this is God's timeline, and this is something that can teach us a great deal about uh, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Well, the first one I wanna talk about is the first one it handles in the text, and that is the Sabbath. Now we've talked about this in other sessions, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But the Sabbath, along with the other feasts and observances, are described by the book of Colossians uh, in 2.16 as a shadow of the things to come. And so this is a, a shadow of the things to come, so that the this would include then not only the other feasts, not only the, the laws and the things that were given to the people of Israel, but also the Sabbath itself. Now, Paul argues here in the book of Colossians against those who are teaching that Christians have to observe certain rituals of Judaism, either to be saved or at least to be faithful Christians. Now, Paul begins his argument with the very first sign of being a Jew, and that was a sign of circumcision that was given to Abraham that we talked some about in uh, Genesis chapter 17. So, Paul begins with circumcision and then he builds up and he mentions the feast and even the Sabbath. And that's because his opposition, these people called Judaizers, would come along after Paul had taught the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, they would come along and say, yeah, 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 the grace and faith stuff, that's all great, but you've got to follow these rules. I mean, you've got to obey, you know, all the, that the Lord wrote down in his word. And it would be a fine sounding argument because indeed a Christian is held to, as all the people of God are, a very high standard of conduct, something consistent with the 10 commandments or as Jesus narrowed them down to the two. And then he also narrowed it down to another commandment to love one another. So this would be a fine sounding argument, but the problem was uh, they would start with, okay, uh, you're a Christian now, first thing you got to do, you got to become a Jew and you got to get circumcised. 
And then the, the person, you, it, once they were convinced of that, they would say, okay, great. Now you got to go to Jerusalem with me for these feasts. There's three of them a year that we have to go to Jerusalem for. And then the others you're going to have to observe and I'm going to have to teach all that. And then you're going to have to change your diet a little bit. We got some restrictions on things we're supposed to eat. And they would start adding more and more and more. And Paul argued vehemently against circumcision of the Gentiles. And that's consistent with all of the early church. When we go to Acts chapter 15, there was a lot of confusion about, hey, these non-Jews are coming into the Christian faith. What do we do with them? What do we tell them to observe? And so they had a council with James and, and Peter presumably was there and Paul was there at this council in Acts chapter 15. And they narrowed it down really to two things, avoiding sexual immorality and or three things, eating things that still had the blood in them and eating food sacrificed to idols. And they said, we don't want to put any other yoke on you. So that was their opportunity to say, oh, you got to be circumcised. You got to follow the feast. You got to follow all these, you know, whatever you can of the ceremonial law and all those things. So here in Colossians, Paul takes circumcision and then he connects the Sabbath to it and the feast to it. And he makes a single argument against legalistically observing these things. Good cross-references for you to study found in your notes would be Romans 14 and the book of Hebrews chapters 8 and 10 can also be helpful. Now, uh, observing these things, if you observe these things in the law as if you're achieving part of your salvation, or if you are doing these things, thinking that it's necessary to do these in order for you to have favor with God. What you do, according to the way Paul argues this, is you set your mind on the flesh. In other words, it turns your attention to the things that you are doing. And what the New Testament does, in stark contrast to that, is it turns all the worshippers' attention to Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has done. Remember when he met with the woman at the well, she asked about a, an observance, a matter of observance. Are we supposed to worship here in Samaria or over there in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, well, look, there's going to come a time when we will worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, what Jesus was saying is it's not where the manner, it's the matter of who that you're worshiping and his identity, and that will bring you into all truth. Now, the Sabbath and these feasts are optionally observed by many Christians, and some observe the Sabbath, of course, as it is on Saturday. Some people treat Sunday, the Lord's Day, like a Sabbath, uh, but neither is really commanded in the New Testament. And therefore, it is up to your liberty in Christ to observe them or to not observe them. Because the Sabbath has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. According to the book of Hebrews, he is that final rest, that final Sabbath that God was bringing the people of Israel into. He fulfills and he gives eternal rest in his people beginning now and then being complete, completely fulfilled by him in the new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus is our Sabbath rest. If you want to observe the feasts and the Sabbath, you, of course, are free to do so. 
Only do so with the understanding that it is an act of worship and it is something that you have chosen to do and then embrace it to get everything you can out of it, giving God what he is due. And so that will give you the right attitude about worshiping those things and about observing those feasts. It is indeed a, a matter of your liberty. Now, it has been my experience that people, Christians that do observe the Sabbath with this attitude in mind, are tremendously blessed by the experience. And I believe you will be too, as long as you don't uh, confuse it with the grace of God, which is what saves you. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Some even take the ages, you know, they look at the significant changes of time in the Bible, you know, the, in it, the time in the garden, the time before the flood, the time after the flood until uh, Israel, the time of Israel, and things like that. And they break all of human history into periods of time. And they look at the new heavens and the new earth often as the seventh age, the age of rest. It's really kind of a remarkable way to do it. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily true. I'm not sure God uh, had that in mind, but things do seem to neatly fit into a pattern where at the end of it, just like at the end of the week is the Sabbath rest, at the end of all things is the permanent Sabbath rest in Jesus Christ. All right, let's look at the next one. The next one's called the Passover. And the Passover we talked about some weeks ago in a, in a session called the Blood of the Lamb. So I'll invite you to look that up under the Beginnings series. It's number 16. And for the Passover, we want to look at Exodus chapters 12 uh, and that area of Exodus. Uh, and there's some other significant cross-references that can be helpful that are found in your notes. Now, the original Passover is accounted there in Exodus. And during it, a lamb was sacrificed and its blood was applied to the doorposts around uh, the, the door of the dwelling places of the Israelites so that as the last plague, the 10th plague came through and afflicted Egypt, that the blood on the door would cause the last plague, which was the death of the firstborn, to pass over that residence. And the occupants then were essentially saved by the blood of this lamb. Well, of course, Jesus Christ was crucified on the Passover in fulfillment of the Passover. Jesus himself being called the Lamb of God by John the Baptist and in the book of Revelation and by uh, Peter in his, first, in his uh, first letter. Jesus himself is this Lamb of God whose blood pays the price for sin for those who believe. And so Jesus has indeed fulfilled the Passover. The next feast you come to, starting in verse 6 of Leviticus 23, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the next one we'll talk about, the Feast of First Fruits, are generally incorporated into the celebration of the Passover. So the three feasts kind of become one week-long celebration. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins, of course, immediately after the uh, Passover, and the Passover being the first day of it, really. And the, the Lord told the Israelites to eat only unleavened bread for seven days. Now, leavening or yeast in the Bible 
Yeast would be the, the standard leavening of bread in those days. These days we have other things that we use for leavening and that is causing the bread to rise. But uh, yeast is what the Bible's talking about. And yeast in the Bible is often a picture of sin. And no, it doesn't mean yeast is bad, but it's the way that yeast works that really makes it a good uh, picture of sin. And we can find this in, in the Gospels as Jesus tells his parables and some of them talk about uh, yeast. But yeast is an important part of this understanding of the Feast of Unleavened Bread because what it's saying is you're for seven days you're going to eat bread with no yeast. So this would be like flat bread and this would be what uh, they call matzah. And this is them making a complete break with their old life in Egypt because the Passover was the final plague. That very night, Pharaoh's finally ready to tell them to leave uh, Egypt once and for all. So the people leave. So they're on the road. Leavening was spread from batch to batch of dough. In other words, if you were to make bread, you'd make a whole bunch of dough and then you take some of that dough and you'd set it aside for the next day. Then you take your dough that remains and you would make that into bread and cook it and everything else because the cooking process kills the yeast. And then the next day when they would make dough, they'd take their, their flour and their their oil and water and stuff and they'd mix that together and then they'd take that little lump they set aside and they'd bring it back in they'd put it into that and knead it into the dough and then set that dough aside and let it rise that yeast from the previous day would still be active and it would spread through the new batch of dough then they would once again repeat the process take a bit of that dough set it aside and then they would be able to make their bread again well, what God is doing is he's essentially breaking that cycle with the Passover. He's like, you're leaving town, you're to eat unleavened bread for seven days. And that means that whatever yeast they were using in Egypt, they're making a full break with it. They're going to have to have something set aside, some dry yeast, to find another source of it later because they're leaving and they're not going to have fresh dough for seven days that has any yeast in it. Their dough is going to have no yeast. They're going to make unleavened bread. And so removing the yeast is a picture of removing the sin from the people. If God redeemed them from Egypt, they're going to come out of there, out of that way of life, out from under those gods. He's going to bring them into a new life, a new life worshiping the true God. And so it's also a picture then for the believer. Just as the Passover is a picture of our redemption, then the unleavened bread is a picture of us walking in a new life with the Lord after he has redeemed us. And so it's a very important representation of these things. But Jesus is also represented by this unleavened bread. He introduces himself in the book of John chapter 6 as the bread from heaven. And of course, there he's referring to manna that was given from heaven, which, by the way, was also unleavened and given by God because Jesus himself never sinned. And in the tradition of matzah bread used in this uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, while it was in the cooking process, it would always get striped. They would stripe it and it would be pierced. And it's interesting because generations of Jews have no idea why it's striped, why it's pierced. So they have some traditions of why it's striped and why it's pierced. But believers know why it's striped and why it's pierced. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament spoke about it 
when he said Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and by his stripes we are healed. Well, that's interesting. Now, those who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb have been forgiven of their sins. In other words, completely cleansed of sin. They're now saved out of the world. And the unleavened bread speaks of the believer freed from the power and the penalty of sin, clean in the sight of God, not perfected in the sight of man, but clean in the sight of God because of Christ and moving on in new life. The next feast that you come to after the, or actually during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover is the Feast of First Fruits. And that begins uh, in Leviticus uh, 23, verse 9. This was a grain offering of the first ripe grain. And for the Jews, it was generally barley. And on the Passover, the day of Passover, the first harvested barley would be left in a sheaf in the field. And, you know, they would gather it up into a sheaf, you know, bind it or what, however they did that, leave it standing in the field. Then they would gather that uh, the next day and they would prepare it. And then on the third day, that grain would be offered before the Lord as a wave offering by the priest. Jesus, of course, was sacrificed on the Passover as the uh, grain is cut. And then he rose again on the day in which that grain is offered. So is it any wonder that Jesus spoke of himself as a grain of wheat that must die, but would ultimately bear much fruit? And is it any wonder that Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits from the dead? See, Jesus is, and even in the book of Revelation mentioned, as the firstborn from the dead. He's called the firstborn of many brothers. He is, of course, the head of the church, and his resurrection ensures ours. So as the Feast of First Fruits is observed, we see Jesus Christ in it, the first fruits from the dead. On the day that that grain is waved, he rose from the dead. And that's powerfully important to see. Look, he has fulfilled Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits all right there in order. Now comes the Feast of Weeks, which is known as Pentecost. And this you read about in Acts chapter 2. And it's in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 15, that it begins speaking about this. This is celebrated exactly 50 days after the Passover. So in other words, after the Sabbath that the Passover is on, they would count seven weeks, and that would be seven times seven, 49. And then the next day, would be the Feast of Pentecost. And this is an offering of thanks for the summer harvest. And it became later incorporated the idea of being thankful for the Ten Commandments, for the law of God. And so here you have a feast that's kind of got a dual purpose. Now, it was at this feast that the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples for the first time. And more than 3,000 were converted that day, and that was effectively the start of the church. Now, it's interesting because of these seven feasts, there are three of them that God singles out and says, you have to show up for this one. And one of them is the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. 
Another one is the Day of Atonement. And the other, I believe, is the uh, one we'll talk about next, the Feast of Trumpets. And uh, yeah, I think so. And so they have to show up for these. Or no, I'm sorry, it's a Feast of Booths is the one they have to show up for. So the Day of Atonement, Feast of Booths, and here the, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, those were mandatory. And so what happens with a mandatory observance? Well, the faithful people do as they're told. They go back to Jerusalem because the Bible commanded you should gather together. Where are they going to gather? Well, they're going to gather at their place of worship at the temple. So from all around the known world at that time, Jews were coming because remember God had scattered them before the time of Jesus. So Jewish people were all over the world. But the faithful ones returned to Jerusalem at that time of year to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And what does God do? He decides that's when I'm going to send the Holy Spirit on the people. And that's why they spoke in tongues because so many of these foreigners didn't speak Hebrew. So God addresses them all in their own language and announces about Jesus Christ as the fulfilling Messiah and his crucifixion and his resurrection. And 3,000 of them were added to their number that day. And then guess what? Some of them went home. And the early church had an instant spread because of the way God designed this to work. It's really fascinating to see it uncover like that. It fulfills the new covenant. It's spoken of in the book of Joel that the that Peter actually refers to in his preaching on that day. And so these are powerful and important things that we recognize that Jesus Christ has fulfilled. Now, to the fall feast, we turn to the next one, which is called the Feast of Trumpets. And this feast, then the Feast of Trumpets comes, it's followed by a 10-day period, and then comes the Feast of Atonement. And sometimes feast uh, this day would be called, referred to as the Day of Judgment. And the Feast of Trumpets, as you can tell by the name, uh, traditionally has associated with it the blowing of a shofar, which would be a ram's horn which has quite an impressive sound. You can look it up online, someone blowing a, a shofar, and the shofar would be blown, and it, it was representative of calling people to repentance. Because in those days, the trumpet call or the shofar uh, blow was to alert people, to call them to yourself. This calls worshipers to repentance in preparation for the Day of Atonement. Now, in Jewish life, this Feast of Trumpets became associated uh, with the Book of Life. You have the Feast of Trumpets calling them to repentance, and then you have the Day of Atonement, which speaks of atonement for sins. And the whole thing collectively kind of this, you know, look, come to repentance because there's a judgment coming and then payment's going to be made for the sin. And they became associated with the idea of the Book of Life, which of course is mentioned as far back as, as here in the Pentateuch with Moses. So the worshipers would repent and then they considering the Book of Life, they would say, okay, now I'm gonna do some good works and I'm gonna repent of my bad works and hopefully that'll get me written in the Book of Life. And interestingly, one of their greetings of that time, it's still on cards to this day, greeting cards for this feast that says, may you be inscribed for a good year. 
In other words, you know, the, the wish upon the receiver of the greeting, may you be in the book of life. Well, Jesus has, of course, the authority to judge, and he will return to do so. And those who believe in Jesus Christ, however, are written then in the Lamb's Book of Life. And the book of Revelation says there's a judgment and there's two books open. One of those books is about the deeds that people have done. Well, the deeds that people have done are going to condemn everyone. But then the one that's really talked about in the book of Revelation is the Book of Life. And it is whether or not your name is in that book of life determines whether you're going to go into that lake of fire at the end. And that is referred to in the book of Revelation as the Lamb's book of life. In other words, Jesus' book of life. The only way to not go into the lake of fire is to be written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And so salvation, of course, is only in Jesus Christ. So then comes the Day of Atonement after that 10-day period when people are supposed to be repenting and considering these things and being called back to God, called out of their sinful ways. Then comes the Day of Atonement. And this was a very special day for the people of Israel because as you remember, when we spoke of the tabernacle, they had a holy place. But then part of that holy place was a holy of holies that they only went in once a year. So once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take some blood from the offering and go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it upon the top of the ark, which was called the mercy seat or the judgment seat. He would sprinkle that blood on there to make atonement for the sins of Israel. So the New Testament teaches particularly in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, and also in Romans chapter 3, what it means to us, the New Testament teaches that Jesus Christ is the final, once for all, sacrifice for sins. And the book of Hebrews talks about the fact that Jesus entered into, once and for all, the true holy of holies in heaven to make atonement on our behalf. Now that's powerfully important and it's also very instructive because now we understand when Jesus was crucified and he hung upon the cross and he gave up the spirit and he said, it is finished. In other words, that word means paid in full. It is finished that the veil of the temple that divides the holy place from the most holy place was torn into from top to bottom. In other words, this was something God did. He ripped it in half from the top, indicating that the way into the Holy of Holies now has been made. And it's been made by Jesus Christ who entered into the real Holy of Holies in heaven, offered himself in to take God's wrath for our sins. That is the Day of Atonement. Like I said, that has been partially fulfilled, but it's believed by many as Jesus has fulfilled the first four in order that he is going to fulfill the last three in a more complete way at his second coming. So the Feast of Booths is the next one. And the Feast of Booths is fascinating. And we do know that Jesus observed this with his disciples. And that's in Leviticus 23, starting verse 33. And there's a big deal made about it in the book of Nehemiah 
in chapter 8. When they began to read the law, they began to observe the law, and they realized, hey, it's the time for this Feast of Booths things. We got to do this. And so they did it. Now, this is a week-long celebration that primarily remembers the time of wilderness wandering, how God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, and for a time, they dwelt in temporary dwellings outside. That's what a booth is. It's a temporary dwelling. It's not really a tent. You would take some wood, you would fashion a frame, and you would lay branches over it and uh, to make kind of a crude roof, a covering. So what you basically have is a lean-to. But the interesting thing about it is it's open. It's not like a tent. It's not fully enclosed. So you can still see the stars. You're still kind of out in the wilderness, and yet you have kind of a makeshift shelter of sorts. And this would represent the shelter and protection of God that he gave them while they were in their temporary home in the wilderness, getting ready to bring them into the promised land. So this celebration uh, was also considered uh, Thanksgiving for the harvest because by this time of year when this comes around, the harvest would be all done and they would celebrate the harvest. They would celebrate the forgiveness of God and his provision of shelter. Now, part of the observations of this is that they would take lit torches and they would march around the temple. And this was a sign to remind them that, I, that like Isaiah said, they were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. And so they would take these lit torches at night around the temple and it would be a kind of a lovely sight, a, a kind of a parade, a procession of this light going around the temple. And... It's interesting that at this occasion, Jesus referred to himself as the light of the world. Now, something else they did during the observance of this uh, around the time of Jesus was they would take some water from the pool of Siloam and they would present that water in the temple. And of course, Jesus referred to himself as the living water. And so this is a important feast, and it's to remind us of the provision of God has been made in Jesus Christ. And indeed, we dwell in him as sojourners in this time. Believers in Jesus Christ are temporarily in a world that's really not their own. We're citizens of heaven, and we're called sojourners here or pilgrims in this world. And but... Jesus is going to bring us into the promised land of a new heaven and new earth when he returns. So this feast should be calling to mind the final harvest of all believers from all nations. And so those are the seven feasts that are there in Leviticus 23. There are other feasts worthy of note. There's rejoicing in the law, which is kind of contained within here, but was not a separate observation for the Jews until many years later. There's the Feast of Dedication, which is uh, the celebration we know as Hanukkah that comes around Christmas time every year. And that is explained in the book of Maccabees. And some say, well, that's not the Bible, so we don't talk about that feast. Well, Jesus observed the feast. So it's worth learning about that feast and its significance. And then there's the Feast of Lots, which is described in the book of Esther. And it's based upon the events that occurred in the book of Esther. And you can read about that in Esther chapter 9. But these seven are the core. These seven serve as 
the yearly calendar for Israel, but also as God's schedule for Jesus Christ, fulfilling the spring ones at his first coming and completing the fulfillment of the fall ones at his second coming. And so what do we know from this? What, what does this tell us to do? Well, the first thing I would recommend is this. Repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of these feasts. And it's not just a matter of us being curious about it. It's not just a matter that God made a neat little thing for us to find in the scripture. But these feasts speak of judgment. And they speak of forgiveness and atonement. And so these speaks these, these speak of life and death itself. And indeed, we should have a year-round celebration of what the Lord has done. And indeed, that's what every Sunday is supposed to be, is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because the resurrection points back to everything else that he has accomplished for his people. And it points forward to our own resurrection with him. We celebrate year-round all of these things. Now, it might be good for you to learn more about these, and it might be good for you to, to maybe begin even to observe them in some ways, knowing that by observing them, you're not purchasing salvation for yourself or gaining special favor with God. But I will tell you this, you will be blessed by God for observing these things. For you will come into a greater understanding of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And you will engage in an active act of worship to him, to thank him for what he has done. But the first entry into that is to repent of sin and to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. That all of these things are totally meaningless unless they apply somehow to us. And the application is this. Jesus came preaching at the beginning of his ministry, repent, which means we turn from our way of thinking about things and we agree with God about our sin and we turn from them and we embrace his salvation. So embrace the salvation that God has freely offered you in Jesus Christ and embrace it by repenting and trusting that Jesus has paid the price for your sins. Everything's being fulfilled right on schedule. And no matter how much Satan in the world hate God and the things of God, God continues to bring forth his kingdom right on schedule. Now, this is our point of encouragement. These, these festivals ought to really encourage us and convince us that God is fulfilling his plans and purposes for humanity through Jesus Christ according to his great plan from before the foundation of the world. Do you have any idea how difficult it would be if a group of us human beings got together and conspired to kill somebody and on the day of Passover in Jerusalem, especially in those days when Jerusalem was completely under Jewish control and, and under Roman control, but the Jews had all the religious authority, all the religious control of the city. There weren't competing ideas. There wasn't a, 
a dome of the rock there, there was a temple, and it was the temple of God, of Yahweh Elohim. And the idea that Jesus was sacrificed on the Passover, that is no mere coincidence. And he wasn't taking a chance on it. There was no chance he was going to be sacrificed the day before the Passover or the day after the Passover. It happened at their Passover. And that is so powerfully important for us to understand that the lamb was sacrificed there and that the blood on our doorposts was made available for the great Passover on that very day. The mission of Jesus Christ was planned from the very beginning. And the details of that mission are woven into the fabric, not only of our, our Bible and not only of the calendar of Israel, but of our very created reality. And it has happened to this point according to plan and right on schedule. Now, this is important because what this teaches us is that there's nothing random about what God has done in Jesus Christ. On that day, there was no rogue thorn in that crown that accidentally punctured his brow or missed its mark. Every single thorn in that crown on the head of Jesus Christ struck precisely its mark and drew precisely the right amount of our Savior's blood. There was no strike of the beating that he took prior to the crucifixion that was accidental. The guards didn't get an extra one in and they didn't miss the ones that were supposed to hit. Every single stripe on his back was there where it should have been according to plan. And there was no nail that was not struck the perfect number of times to hold Jesus Christ perfectly on the cross that day. There was no rain delay to the events that day. There was no other act of nature or no civil uprising or any other thing that interfered with God's schedule to put Jesus Christ on that cross. There was no essential soldier required for the process that suddenly called in sick that day. <laughs> there was no, no one that got fired that day prior to the crucifixion. And well, we're going to have to cancel the crucifixion. We've, we've you know, executed the sergeant for something he did. There was no doubt in Judas that came early enough to stop the process of betrayal. Oh, he had his doubts, but he had already done what was necessary to betray him. There was no sudden unpredicted, unpredictable decisiveness in Pilate that sent Jesus away. Nothing accidentally rose up in Pilate and said, you know what? This is wrong. This is nuts. This guy hasn't done anything wrong. You need to let him go right now. Even his wife came to him and said, you got to have nothing to do with that guy. But Pilate caved to the pressure of the crowd and the religious authorities exactly according to plan. Don't you see what God is clearly showing you? 
that nothing's going to get in the way of Jesus Christ redeeming for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And he's doing it right on schedule. Let me bring this into words that will make it make sense today. There is no voting machine problem that has surprised God. There is no virus that has surprised God. There is no protest or turmoil or political party. No man, no woman, no secret society pulling the strings of humanity and plotting against God. There's no coalition of media magnates that are controlling the worldwide narrative that are going to stop the plans of God to redeem a people, including you, if you believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, how can I know that to be sure? Well, from experience, from looking at things like the feasts and the other things that Jesus Christ has fulfilled and the prophecies and everything he's done according to schedule, it's very clear nothing's derailing this train. But how else can I be sure? Because the Bible shows me a God of great love, a God that is love. And if he is love and he loves his people and he has redeemed his people, he is not going to leave their salvation to chance. Are you subscribing to a Christian faith that has God leaving the salvation of his people to chance. Now, all of God's people repent, and every human being is responsible for his sin and ultimately responsible for whether or not he believes in Jesus Christ because the believing is not a matter of being convinced. <laughs> the believing is a matter of truth. And it's a matter of recognizing this truth, which is written in the heart of every person, and it's woven into the fabric of our created reality. So to not believe in Jesus Christ is to deny him actively, to refuse what your heart and what the, the world is saying to you, and to stay in rebellion. But God's love is too great to leave his people's salvation up to chance. If you will repent and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. But if you reject the Son, who is the very author and finisher of this divine rescue mission, do you think there's any second chance? Any second plan? Look what God has gone through to do this. Along the way, Every human being is a free moral agent choosing to sin from the desire of their very own hearts. Every single one of us. And we're all responsible for those things. But this whole plan of Jesus Christ for the salvation of the world includes himself suffering. Now this whole plan to do this some people would object, well, God is just an awful God. When you look at, you know, he put his son on the cross and he, he did all these things to him. God's just a big meanie. That's a paraphrase of what some people say about him. 
And we'd have to agree with them that God's just a big meanie. Unless that one on the cross was God himself, freely giving himself for the work. A willing substitute, undeserving of the punishment himself, but constrained by love for his people to plan it and to do it. See it through to the end. Now, some will say this is all foolishness. This whole gospel plan, this whole idea of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is foolishness. And guess what? That encourages us too, because the Bible, and I'm thinking particularly 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, they tell us very plainly that the world's going to find all of this foolish. The Bible tells us plainly that the world is going to get things flipped, exactly reversed. They're going to call what's good bad and what's bad good. And indeed, this is foolishness to the world. Some will say, I don't need a savior. But that encourages me too, because that shows what the Bible says about the pride of human beings is true. Do you understand the pride of human beings is what says, I don't need a savior. And if you say, I don't need a savior, that's probably the number one sign that you do. Some will say, I'm a good person. I'm letting my... Good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, and that's going to get me into that book of life thing. Well, the problem with that is that's only by your own estimation. Jesus said it's not just about the acts we do with our hands. It's actually what's in the heart. And the, the Bible tells us the heart is desperately wicked and sick that no one can understand it. That our own desires automatically lead us astray including the desire to take care of our salvation ourselves. Trust in Jesus Christ and trust that he's going to complete his plan. Man's nature is way too broken to just throw Jesus out there and hope it works. He knew what he was doing and he did it on schedule. Let's pray. Father God, we praise your name this day and we are just, we are just stunned by the care at which you took to make hundreds and hundreds of things in your scripture line up to point us to Jesus Christ, to explain not only what he has done, but that you would prove your own word by fulfilling the things that you laid out to do. Lord, I pray that we would understand that, you know, only communication from beyond our dimension could do such a thing as to predict the future, to make a plan for the future and play it out the way that you have in great opposition even. Lord, it's truly an awesome thing and I pray that you would just receive our thanks, that you would receive our worship, for you alone are worthy of worship, for you alone have accomplished these things for your people and you alone deserve to be exalted, lifted up, seen by all for the greatness that you are and for the great things that you have done. May we worship you this day in spirit and in truth. And may you year round give us reminders of what you have done. We praise you in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed today's uh, walk through Leviticus chapter 23. And I want to invite you to contact us if you're interested in learning more. You can contact us at White's Run Baptist Church. And you can find us online at whitesrun.org. And you can even uh, 
email us at whitethronebaptist at gmail.com. I answer those emails personally, and I will get back to you to answer your questions or even of, of your objections. If you think this is absolute foolishness or you disagree with something I say, I invite you to give me an email and we can discuss those things. Uh, so I pray that you enjoyed it and may God bless you.